Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm going to be continuing our series from guilt to gratitude, where last week we looked at the grace of God. We saw God's righteous moral standard in the Bible, the straight line by which mankind is measured, how he created us to live in righteousness and holiness and goodness, and how we are crooked and depraved and sinful, how we offend and dishonor God, and how it would be just for God to destroy us in his wrath, to cast us headlong into hell with the the demons. But instead, God is gracious, and out of his love for us, he has forgiven us. Instead of us dying, he sent his son, who freely came to save us, Jesus Christ. And when Christ died on the cross, those who put their faith in him were joined to Christ in a mysterious way, joined to Christ so that his death became theirs. His death was attributed to their moral account. And if you put your faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven and washed away and God doesn't remember them anymore. And that should create in you an incredible gratitude, which is what we'll be looking at next week. That should create in you an incredible gratitude for the grace of God, for his love, and, and your heart should overflow with the desire to please him. I want to I I pay you back. I want to I reciprocate. How do I love you back? And he's not hungry. He doesn't need your money. He's not lonely. He doesn't need clothes or shelter. What God has said is pleasing to him, is faith, believing him, trusting him, showing him the proper respect to do what he says, to walk in fellowship with him. That's what he wants. But the problem for us as Christians who have put our faith in Christ and want to walk in a way that's pleasing to God is we quickly realize we don't. We can't. The sin in our life that we had even before we were Christians. It's entangled us. It's snared us. It's holding us. It's like a cancer that's infected the lymph nodes, and it's everywhere in our body and our mind. We don't think the right things, and our emotions, they're like wild animals, and, and our families are a mess, and our social networks are all twisted in the wrong direction, and the world is corrupt, and it's really hard to walk in a way that's pleasing to God, which is what we want to do because last week we saw God's amazing grace. So the question is, how? How do I get free? How do I transform? How do I break free from this body of death so that I can live in a way that's holy and right and wise? I want to be maturing in my faith. I want to be fruitful in my life. You know, I want that hope and that joy, that's that godly swagger that you see in the New Testament, the hopeful, powerful, joyful, peaceful, living Of these Christians, I want that. How do I get that? That's what we're talking about today. The grace of God. No, 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 Matt. We talked about the grace of God last week. We talked about how God saved us. His grace, yes. But God's grace didn't stop when we became Christians. God's grace just got started. God's grace runs through our lives. God's grace is like a fuel We as Christians, living to our fullest, we run on grace the way that a 747 burns jet fuel at takeoff. I heard a guy say that one time. That's a great picture, isn't it? Christians run on grace the way a 747 burns jet fuel on takeoff. That We need God's grace. And so today we're going to talk about how to get it and the promises once we have it. So I think we should start by defining some terms. Grace in the Bible, it has 
two major facets. And I have a passage here that will show you both. It's from Titus, Titus 2. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's what we saw last week. God has saved us from our sins. And salvation here means more than just we're not going to hell when we die. We're going to heaven when we die. But, but for now, it's what we talked about last week. The grace of God has appeared and it offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the grace of God does two things. It is both the unmerited favor, the forgiveness of our sins, the graciousness of God to us, but it's also powered for godly living. And we see these two facets throughout the scriptures. God is not an angry God in the Old Testament and a sweet God in the New Testament. That's it's actually blasphemous. That's, that's saying things about God that are not true. It's the same God of grace and compassion and patience and love from the beginning of the Bible to the end. I'll show you. No one knew God's grace. It says in Genesis chapter 6, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's how the Old Testament describes the grace of God. The psalmist in the middle of the Bible, he knew the grace of God. But you, O Lord, are God merciful and gracious. He goes on to describe God's other attributes that he's revealed to himself, revealed himself. Then in the New Testament, we see it too. In Romans 3.24, Paul writes, we're justified by his grace as a gift. We don't earn his grace. His grace is undeserved favor. It's from the greater to the lesser. It's from the stronger to the weaker. It's from the righteous to the wicked. It's from the rich to the poor. Our Father does not owe us a thing, but yet he pours out his grace. Why? Because he is loving. You want to know what God is like down at the core? It's grace. It is this overflowing love which expresses itself in acts of goodness and kindness and mercy. And if you put all those things in a bottle and you slap a label on it, that's God's grace. It's all the things he does for us that we can never do on our own. But this is just the first part of grace. The second part of grace is power. It's both undeserved favor and power for godly living. The Bible talks of grace as a power for godly living, for transformation. That's what I want to focus on today because we need that. We need that. We're grateful for his his grace and his forgiveness of our guilt. And when we're grateful, we want to live for him. And yet we find ourselves trapped in the old sins, the guilt, and we confess it, and we ask for freedom, and then we, we try to walk, and, and we need his grace to do it. We need power for godly living. So Titus says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now in this passage, the word teaches us, grace teaches us. How does grace teach us? Well, I think in this passage, the word grace is synonymous for the Holy Spirit, who's often called the Spirit of grace. And so the Spirit of grace is teaching us how to say no to ungodliness. The spirit of grace, which has been poured out on us, is the spirit that has saved us. Now, if we are to experience the grace of God in our lives, what are the blessings that God promises to us? What are the good things he holds out? If I was to be full of God's grace and draw upon it, what are the good things that I can look forward to? Well, the first is power over sin. And this is a big deal. In the Old Testament, all through the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they were always promising that in the days that you and I live in, 
God would pour out his spirit. He would change their hearts. He would give them new desires. He would write his law in them. He would make them want to obey. In the prophets about the days you and I live in today, they promised that even children would be closer to the Lord and know the Lord better than even the great saints of old. And the the Jewish people, this was a promise because they were under condemnation. God's righteous moral standard was laid down upon their nation and they kept falling short. The, the, The commands of God said, be righteous and always go to the right. And they were crooked and wicked and always went to the left. And so this righteous moral standard would say, stand up straight, and they would fall short, and they had to sacrifice bulls and goats. And there'd be another command that would say, go right, they would go left, and they'd have to sacrifice bulls and goats. And the standard that God gave them, they could not live up to, and so they were under condemnation and under guilt. They knew what was right, they just didn't have the power to do it. Can you relate to that? You ever felt like that? Have you ever looked in the mirror and felt disgust at your sin, your weakness, your corruption, your frailty? You know what you ought to do, but you don't. You can't. And so the kind of grace that gives you power over sin, that's a good promise. And so here's what Paul writes. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. I don't have to let sin reign. I can depose that dictator. I have the power now to kick sin off the throne. And do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but offer yourselves to God. You can choose who you offer yourself to now. God has broken the chains so that you can choose. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. Why? Why am I not under the slavery of sin anymore? Because you are not under law, but under grace. The time where all you had was the law of God, the moral standard of God, the righteousness of God, but no power to do it. That time is done. You now live in a time where you don't just have the law of God. You have the grace of God, the power of God to break the chains of sin. Doesn't that sound good? Do you want that? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you had the power to finally once and for all put to death your sexual immorality and impurity? To be able to reign over and control those passions that have gotten you in so much of a mess? The envy or bitterness or pride or arrogance that you know you have and you've tried to put it to death but you can't apart from the grace of God. Do you want to be free of your laziness so that your fruitless life can be a fruitful life? So that rather than shame, you might have honor? Do you want to be free from greed? Have you ever looked yourself in the mirror and been disgusted by your lack of self-control? The promise of God's grace is power over sin. We haven't talked about how to get that grace, but we have identified A wonderful promise, and I want that. Do you want that? Second blessing, second blessing of his grace, provision. God will provide for you what you do not have in the work he wants you to do, in the weaknesses that you bear, and even the gifts that you have. Provision in my work. The Bible says that God is a workman, that you're on his bench and he's 
He's fixing you up to send you back into this world as his son, as his image bearers, as his princes to rule over the world. And he wants you to do good, good works, all all these good works. He's got all these things he wants you to do, good works. Problem is good works are exhausting. Good works that please God drain us. We have habits, we have patterns, we have a way of living, and it's not good works. We think certain ways. Even after we become Christians, we think certain ways. We have certain patterns of feelings. We have certain patterns of desires. Our body has, you know, habits and addictions. Our social network, we just do Thanksgiving the way we do Thanksgiving. We just drive our cars. We just talk that way in the Sprinkle family. There's all these things that are working against the good work that God wants you to do. But God is promising to give you everything you need to do the good he wants you to do. This is grace. And God is able to make all, what? All grace abound to you. So that, notice how many times he uses the word all. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Wow, that's a lot of alls. God is saying, whatever you do, wherever you go, whatever you need, I'm going to supply it. If you are doing what you're doing in faithful obedience to me. I'm going to supply it. I'm going to give you what you need. So don't worry about it. You don't need to bring a jacket. You don't need to bring a sleeping bag. You don't need to bring a wallet. All you need is sandals and a walking stick. And wherever you go, I'm going to provide for you. That's what Jesus literally told his disciples when he sent them out. (laughs) Don't worry about it. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to all the time, everything, all the way, abundantly. This is the work of the grace of God in your life. Now, wouldn't you like the freedom? Wouldn't that be a freedom? And then number two, yeah, but I, I that's great, but I'm, I'm weak. I have, I have frailties, physical frailties, weaknesses physically. And I just, I don't want them. I just feel like I'm missing out on the good life. Like I'm not going to have the good stuff. But here Paul tells us that actually in the weakness, we receive more grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's talking about a physical ailment that he has. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, I think the weakness that he's talking about is his eyes. I think Paul had bad eyesight. I could be wrong about that. I'm not saying it's the, you know, cold hard truth. But let's assume for a moment that Paul does have bad eyesight. Think about how much better he would be for the Lord, how much more work he could do if he could see good. And yet God says to Paul, Paul, you are a canvas upon which I will paint with my power such that others will see and glorify me. I am going to show off my grace in your weakness. You see, Paul, when you have ten and you need seven to do the things I called you to do, you don't need me. When I call you to do something, Paul, and it costs five to do it, but you got twenty, you don't need me. But Paul, when I tell you to do something that takes ten and you've got two, well, you need me. And my grace fills you up. When I call you to do something that takes 50 and you have zero and you still get out of the boat, that's when my grace is filling you up. 
And my grace is the grace that transforms and empowers and works and it heals. So weakness is actually one of the ways that we learn to draw upon the grace of God. Now think of the freedom you would have if by experience you have seen the faithfulness of God where you didn't have enough gas in the gas tank, but you drove for a thousand miles just on the grace of God. God told you to go. There was no gas in the tank. There were no tires on the car. You got in the car, you turned on the ignition, and you ended up in Washington. It was like amazing. Now you think that's crazy. But there was this guy named Naaman, who was a Syrian general, who came across the border to Israel because he had leprosy. And when he went to the prophet of God, God tested his faith by saying, go wash in the river seven times. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Driving a car with no gasoline and no tires makes more sense than washing in a river seven times. Why seven? That's what Naaman said. Why? But he did it. And God healed him. Because God is not interested in the specifics. What he's interested in is our faith. He wants us to call upon him and lean upon him and do it with him so that his power can overflow into our lives and the weaknesses that we have are how God does that. And this is a promise. This is a blessing of his grace. Yeah, Matt, that's all great. But you know what? I got weaknesses. I don't have a lot of strengths. I don't have gifts. Look at that guy. He's got all these gifts. He's so handsome. He's so tall. He's so great. Everybody loves him. Look at that girl. She's so beautiful. She's so smart. She's got all these gifts. What about me? Where's my gifts? You ever thought that? You ever felt like that? Sure you have. Have a little pity party. The truth is, God has given you gifts. If you follow Christ, if you're a believer, if you've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have been given unique gifts. Gifts that you have that I don't have. God says this. This is one of the promises of his grace. Listen to this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Huh. God's grace is in the gifts. The gifts are his grace. Again, Ephesians 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So Christ's gifts are graces. And the grace of God is in part the gifts we have. So then how do I know what my gifts are? Well, what do you notice? Think about it. When feet walk into a church that have no feet, what do they notice? How unstable the body is, right? When eyes walk into a church that have no eyes, what do they notice? This place is blind. They need some eyes. And when hands walk into a church with no hands, what do they notice? <clears throat> These people got a lot of work to do. They got to pick some stuff up. And when you come to church in the valley and you notice a need for instruction, Maybe you've been given the grace of teaching. If you see all the needs, maybe you've been given the gift of service. If you notice that people are tired and discouraged and you notice that they're weary and heavy, maybe you've been given the grace of encouragement. Some of you are noticing the natural, financial, and material needs of others here in this church, and you have the means to support them and to help them, and you want to. Because God has given you the grace of generosity. Do you have a heart for the lost? Do you really burn for them to be saved? You may have been given the grace of evangelism. And I know some of you see suffering and you want to relieve it and you do. You have the gift of mercy. 
And God has given all of us gifts, and he's given us pastors and elders to oversee the church so that these gifts are knitted together in a harmonious and orderly way. So it's not like I decide that I have the the gift of rapping, and I come up and I grab the mic and I start, you know. We have to do this in an orderly way. But if you notice people and you notice problems, don't criticize. Don't think of that as an opportunity for you to say, well, why don't they have this? But as a call for you to serve. Because the more you serve, the more these graces come out. The more you serve, the more feedback you get from the body where people are like, that really blessed me. And you delighted in it. And that's a great sign that you have that gift. So even, even the gifts we have are an act of grace. This is God's provision. This is his promise for us who walk with him in grace. And finally, the third promise that I'd like us to look at, which I think is really wonderful, is the protection of my new life and progress. A lot of people are worried they're going to lose their salvation. They're just looking for the verse in the Bible that gives God a loophole so that he can cast them headlong into hell, so that he can forsake them. Yeah, I love you, and I sent my son to die for you, but if you screw up one more time, they're just sure that there's a there's a, a place that they can go, there's a thing that they can do, and then the Lord is going to just disregard them. He's going he's gonna to disown them. Yeah, he adopted me, but he'll kick me right back out of the family. But that's not true. The grace of God keeps you. Did God save you? Or did you save yourself? Did you bring yourself back from the dead? When you were following Satan into hell, did you save yourself? No, the Lord did. And the Lord Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And just in case it wasn't clear, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So the picture here is simple. The father has given me, Matt Sprinkle, to the son. And he has me and he will never let me go. There is no one strong enough to pull me out of the Lord Jesus' hands. Yeah, Matt, but you don't know my sin, man. You don't know. I just, I just, I just can't get over these things. I just, I just, I just think that maybe God's mad. You know, maybe just, maybe God just doesn't want me anymore. Did you get that from the Bible? Because that's not what Jesus just said. Look, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You were dead, and He brought you to life when you were His enemy. How much more will He love you now that you're His child? <laughs> he knows you want to obey Him. He knows your sin. He knows your weakness. That's why He's giving you grace to break it free. Accept the promise of his blessing. He has protected your new life. Yeah, but it's frustrating. You know, I want to change. There's this area of my life that I just keep falling back into. I have the same issue with my marriage or, you know, I screwed up this or I can't do that. I just don't feel like I'm making much progress. Says who? Are you your own master? Has God commanded you to evaluate yourself? Are you so perceptive that you can actually measure yourself and score yourself accurately such that God would say, yep, that's exactly right. No, you shouldn't judge yourself because the truth is you don't even see yourself. Rather, you should entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And who said you're not making progress? Because God told me that he's actually been making progress in your life. Here's where it says it. Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
What God started in you when he saved you, he has not stopped. He has been growing and carrying it on all the way until it's complete. So keep walking in faith and keep believing in his power and his goodness. These are the promises of his grace. Now, do you want these things? Do you want his power and his provision and his protection? Do you want the blessings of his grace? I'm not talking about being his kid. You are his kid if you follow Christ. What I'm talking about is learning how to be like dad. You can be a billionaire child who lives on the slums of the streets of India because you don't know that you're Bruce Wayne and you own all this fortune. You are a part of the family of God, but you can still live like an orphan. And if you want that power to be free of sin, and you want the protection, and if you want the provision, these are blessings of grace if you'll receive it. And what I'd like to do for the rest of our time is show you what God says it takes to receive the grace. How do you receive the grace? The answer is there are three things. Three things that allow you to receive the grace. Faith, effort, and endurance. Let's start with faith. You don't earn the grace, and you don't make yourself change by pedaling harder. That's a kind of legalistic earning. I do it on my own strength. That's Mormonism, Judaism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhism. We're not pedal harder people. That's unbelief. If you're trying to do it with your own white-knuckling self-control, you're actually disbelieving what God has said. Because God has said some things that that is not how it works. And you're not believing him. You're thinking you've got to do it. And that unbelief, that will lead you right to hell. That unbelief, there's no promises there. The promises are for faith. And on the other side is a ditch. And that ditch is like, man, God said he forgave me. So I can just do what I want, right? It's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. You know what I'm saying? See you in heaven. And you think that you can presume on the grace of God because he says that I've forgiven your sins past, present, and future, and I remember them no more. And you see that as a blank check to go off and sin. That's unbelief. Because God says some other things too. That's unbelief. That's a ditch. This is unbelief. That's a ditch. And those ditches, they lead down. But faith, faith is believing what God says and responding accordingly. So in Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, our salvation is through faith. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. So we were saved and justified by faith. But we're still in the power of God and the grace of God. We're still drawing on the grace of God. We're still receiving the grace of God by faith. And what that means is, is that when God says, I sent my son to die for you because you are a sinner and a just God, a just king like me has to punish evildoers. But I love you. And so I have punished my son in your place. He died on your behalf. And if you will follow him as your Lord, then your sins are wiped away. You receive his spirit. You will transform into his image. And you hear this. You understand it. And you believe it. You say, I agree. I am a sinner. I'm not trying to justify myself before you, God. And yeah, there's sins in my life that I know you don't like. And I like them. 
but I know I shouldn't like them. And I like you more. And I want to follow you. So I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm going to get baptized publicly, even though it's embarrassing because I'm like a 55, 65, 75, 21, 18-year-old guy. Right? I'm going to get baptized because that's what you commanded in faith. Because I believe you. It's faith. And as you walk in faith, you hear what God says, you believe what God says, you respond in obedience. The blessings of his grace flow into your life. You're not earning them. You're receiving them. But you receive them in the way that you walk. And you walk that way because you heard God. Because you heard God. And you believed God. That's faith. That's what it means. That's what it means to walk by faith. If that's not clear, just come see me at CIV. Just email me, Matt at Church in the Valley. We can talk some more. But it starts with faith. That's how I receive his grace. Then it goes to effort. Number two is effort. Okay? What do you mean effort? I thought you just said we're not supposed to earn it. You're right. We're not. But grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. God wants you to sweat. He wants you to work. He wants you to put your back into it. He wants you to give your undivided full attention, just like athletes do, just like soldiers do, just like people who practice the guitar do. Everything that leads to transformation takes discipline, effort, sweat. And the spiritual life is no different. No different. So Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What that means is his grace, his power, has given us all the resources so that we can live godly. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. As I know Jesus and as I see Jesus and as I love Jesus and I think Jesus is awesome and I want to be like Jesus. That power, that desire, that that in me makes me become more excellent and more glorious and more excellent and more glorious as I obey in faith. And then he says, so you want that? You want to transform? You want to be more like Christ? I do. I do. And then Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. He means work hard. Get after it. And then Paul says the same thing, but he says it in kind of a funner way. Paul says, but the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I mean, it's God's grace is in me. But his grace towards me was not in vain. I didn't waste God's grace. I wasn't ungrateful. I didn't go to either one of those ditches. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. (laughs) Peter, James, I worked harder than those guys. I was like, you take Jerusalem and you take Samaria and I'll take the rest of the world. But then Paul says, but but not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So Paul knows, it's like, I'm getting getting a little crazy, right? But what he's saying is, is I wanted to please God. I wanted to be full of the grace of God. So I worked hard. Peter's saying, you need to work hard. Now, what do I do? The answer is, is you practice spiritual disciplines. You work hard. The way that you draw the grace of God into your life, like a syringe drawing medicine as you pull back the plunger, the way you draw the grace of God into your life so that it cleanses and so that it transforms and so that it matures and it enlightens and it makes fruitful your life, right? All those metaphors. The way the transformation happens is through effort, faithful effort. Now, there are many disciplines to get yourself to look like the rock. And there are many disciplines to play the guitar like John Mayer. And there are many disciplines that you have to learn to be a painter like Picasso. And in the same way, there are many disciplines that will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of God. But there are four fundamental disciplines that every Christian that's going to grow in God's grace must regularly practice. These are the efforts. This is the sweat. These are the things you do. 
And on the screen is the navigator wheel to teach them to you. These four things are disciplines that you do. And as you do them in faith, God's grace flows into your life. They are read the Bible, pray, fellowship, and evangelism. I want those blessings, Matt. I want the protection. I want the provision. I want the power over sin. Well, then you're going to need the grace of God. Well, how do I get the grace of God? By faith and effort. What efforts, Matt? Pray. Read the Bible. Fellowship. Evangelism. That will draw his grace into your life, and those things will grow. So let's talk about the Bible. How are you going to obey God if you don't know what he says? How are you going to exercise faith if God is not talking? If all you hear from God is silence because you don't read the Bible and you don't know what he thinks and you don't know what he said, you cannot respond in faith. Therefore, you must read the Bible. The Bible is God's word. And so every day when you get up and have breakfast and you have your toast and you take a couple bites, you also read your Bible and you take a couple bites. You don't read chapters and chapters and chapters. You just read a couple bites. And then you chew the toast and enjoy the orange juice and you chew the Bible by asking three questions. What did God say? What does God mean by what he said? And how can I respond reasonably in faith? That's how you chew. And God will show you, the Holy Spirit will show you how you can respond in faith. And then you go and do it. Now, how did I learn what God wanted me to do? And how did I find myself on this wonderful adventure where the grace of God is being poured into my life? Well, because I, I read my Bible and he told me and I heard him and I did that each day. And so I read the Bible. So I hear God's word, and it, it leads me into the grace of God. I study the Bible, so I know all the things he says about all the topics he cares about. About authority, and about attitude, about my money, my time, about my marriage, my words, my work. I know the big passages that tell me what God's will is on those things, so that I can live in faith. And then I feel stressed out about it, and like, I need stuff, and so I pray and I talk to God. Now, prayer is a discipline. It's not just spontaneous you got to set times. The apostles, Jesus, the great saints of the Old Testament, they had regular times of prayer. In the morning, in the afternoon, and at night, they set their, their calendar time. And they would take time away to go and talk to God and be refreshed and draw upon his grace and ask for forgiveness and get straightened up with him again and then go back out. Our senior pastor, Randy, our executive pastor, they have times of prayer, regular times of prayer. They're not doing it to earn it. They're doing it because that's how one of the ways that God's grace flows in their life. So if you'd like some coaching on how to pray regularly as a discipline to put the effort into prayer, because you're not good at prayer, which most of us are not, and that's okay. You know, one-year-old kids are not good at walking. Nobody's judging. <laughs> when you fall, get back up and, you know, try to walk to daddy. You don't know how to pray, no problem. Just ask. But you can't stay there because that's not being, that's an effort. And if you don't put in the effort, you're not going to get the grace. And if you don't have the grace, all those promises are not going to be for you. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to stop being a child. You're just going to be Bruce Wayne living in the slums of India. Why? Why would you do that? And then with the prayer and with the word of God, there's the fellowship. That is regularly engaging in a shared life, a reciprocal life. I give, you give, you take, I take. It's a life that we share together like a family as we work toward the purposes of God. Now, my family's not very impressed with me because my family sees all my sins. They know all my mistakes. They see my weaknesses. They know my righteousness, too. But, you know, I, I'm not impressing them. And in the same way, in fellowship at a church, you're not impressing anybody. 
Your relationship with people is based upon your continual choice that you make to stay connected, to attend a group, to come to worship, to be honest and open, to serve, to give, to listen. Because, look, you could go play with your phone. You could go on a vacation. You could have your boys that you've known since the, the, you know, the Vietnam days or your war days or your, your college days or your work days. You know, you got your real friends. Then you got your church friends. But that's not what God's calling you to do. God is calling to make your church your family. Now, you're not going to replace my wife, Joy, but you are my brothers and sisters. And so there is an appropriate level of devotion and duty and loyalty and service and love and knowledge. And that requires you coming and showing up and letting the guard down. And man, that's risky, right? Because people are hard work. I don't have the energy for that. That's going to take a lot of grace. Oh, I get it. Fellowship takes grace because like, I don't want to do it and stuff. That's smart, God. Exactly. So as I regularly participate in a group, on a team, as I have people over to my house, as I serve, as I'm involved in the life of the church, I'm constantly putting myself in a position that's risky, and I'm doing it in faith, and God's grace is healing and cleansing, and he's networking me together. And there's, there's so many wonderful blessings that come from fellowship, of course. Of course. But this is how God's grace is drawn in by fellowship. And that leaves us with evangelism. You want to draw on the grace of God? You want to be on your knees in prayer? You want to be studying the Bible to understand what it says? Share your faith. Come out of the closet and tell people you're a, you're a Christian, that there's no daylight between you and Jesus, that you believe everything the Bible says and you're not even embarrassed about it. Tell your old man that he that uh, the gospel, that's an awkward conversation. Tell your sister. Tell your neighbors. Tell your roommate. Tell your friends online, on Discord, your buddies that you play you know, Minecraft with. Type the gospel out. They may think you're weird. And so in sharing your faith, it burns out fear of man. It burns out pride. And in sharing your faith, you start to have a heart for people who are far from God, just like God does. And as you share your faith, it fills you and it grows you in a way that you will not grow apart from it. These are disciplines. These are efforts. This is work. It's not earning. But if you want those promises, it takes faith, it takes effort, and it takes endurance. And this is our last one. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, why did Christ suffer in his body? Well, on the cross, obviously. But he also suffered like every day because the world is spinning in this sinful way and he's living this righteous life and he's bumping up against people who want him to go here and do this and he's not participating in that and he's got desires and he's got weaknesses and he's tired and he's got a cold and he could have been impatient. He is constantly choosing to walk in righteousness and he's being twisted against this twisted world. So since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Why? Because whoever suffers in the body's done with sin. If you're willing to hurt for it, if you're willing to endure suffering, you're done with sin. The power sin has over you to still hold on to you so you can't be fruitful and you can't grow is because sin will hurt you if you disobey it. For a time, when an alcoholic refuses to drink, sin in his members hurts him and he has withdrawals, right? And when you try to exercise for the first time in a long time, your body hurts you because you feel sore and it makes you pay that price. It's hard to learn how to play the guitar. It takes a lot of discipline. If you have a painful joint, a bone out of socket, popping it back in is going to be very painful. And so we all know what it's like to hurt when you're doing the right things, to, to suffer in this way. And Paul says, or Peter says, as a result, 
They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. We want to live for you, God. We're so grateful. But we get pulled back by our sin. How do I break free? I need God's grace so I can live for you and not my, not my desires. Well, how do, I, how, do I, how do I get that grace? Faith, effort, endurance. When your world, when your body, when your family, when your friends try to push you back into that old life, when you try to read your Bible and you try to pray regularly and you commit to fellowship and you commit to sharing your faith and things start, you know, causing you to trip and things start going right. and It's just really hard to get into a habit or a pattern. Keep going. Keep going. Even if it's suffering, keep going because God will eventually break you free. You'll get to this point where there's no suffering in it anymore and you have been transformed. It's not over. You're going to get round two and round three. But that's how it works. God calls us forward. We hear him in faith. We want to do it. We start to walk in faithful obedience. It's effort. We face opposition, but we suffer through it. We don't quit. We keep going. And then we experience the release. We experience the blessing. We experience the harvest. We experience the maturity. We experience the the fruit. These, These are all part of what the Bible says. This is how we enjoy the blessings of grace. Do you want all these things? If you do... Here are some next steps. Number one, receive Christ as your Lord and Savior because only Jesus offers these wonderful things that we heard today. Number two, study these passages from this week. If you want to start reading your Bible every morning, just take one of the verses that are in the sermon outline. Each morning, ask the question, what did God say? What does God mean? How do I respond in faith? And do that until you're done with the sermon. Number three, Draw near to the throne of grace. Whenever you feel weak, whenever you feel like you just need juice you don't have, go right right there. Just turn your attention and your mind to God and say, God, please help me. And he will. Because that's faith. He told you he will. And when you do that, you're acting in faith. He'll give you what you need. And then finally, which one of those uh, spiritual disciplines do you need to grow in? Is it reading the Bible, prayer? Is it evangelism? Is it fellowship? Write it one down and then decide something you're going to do this week to grow in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and the promise of it. Just all the good things that come for us as we walk and grow in grace. Would you give us the the power, the grace to choose faith, effort, and endurance? In Jesus' name, amen.